Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Cancer Support Community is a global nonprofit network of 175 locations, including Cancer Support Community and Gilda's Club Centers, healthcare partnerships, and satellite locations that deliver more than $50 million in free support services to patients and families. In January 2018, CSC welcomed Denver-based nonprofit My Lifeline, a digital community that includes more than 40,000 patients, caregivers, and their supporters. Well, you know, one of my favorite things about hosting this radio show is the opportunity to introduce you to incredible people whose amazing stories inspire, energize, and encourage. Today, as part of our special series, Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer, I'm going to introduce you to Laura McGregor. Laura is not just living well with metastatic breast cancer, she is thriving and generously sharing her hope-filled approach to life with everyone she meets, but especially with those people who, like her, are living with this disease. Later in the show, we will also be joined by Nancy Lomibau, Program Director and Chief Clinical Officer at the Cancer Support Community in Redondo Beach. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Laura. Laura is the founder of Hope Scarves, an international nonprofit organization based in Louisville, Kentucky. The mission of Hope Scarves is to share scarves, stories, and hope with people facing cancer. Laura started Hope Scarves as a way to turn her experience with cancer into something positive to help others. Laura's professional background is in nonprofit leadership. She has a master's degree in public administration and worked in fundraising with several nonprofits for 11 years before starting one of her own. Laura has received many awards for her work through Hope Scarves, including being named Most Admired Woman in Nonprofit by Today's Woman, 2007 Citizen Laureate by Louisville Younger Women's Club, Cure Champion with American Cancer Society, and being named Charity of the Year by Kentucky Derby Festival in 2014 and 2015. Lara was named to the 40 Under 40 by Louisville Business First in 2016, and Hope Scars was named Small Business of the Year People's Choice winner from Greater Louisville, Inc. Lara and her husband, Jay, call Louisville home and have two sons, Wills, who's 13, and Bennett, who's 10. Thank you for being with us today, Lara. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Excellent. So, Laura, I guess we should start by addressing the elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, I know just a few weeks ago, after four and a half years of clear scans, a new spot in your left femur and a growth on your right hip were detected. That same weekend, in spite of this news, you hosted a major benefit event. You then spent a week in Maine as planned, keeping your family's tradition to visit a national park every year. And soon after that, traveled to Washington, D.C. for a speaking engagement. A lot of people would have put their lives on hold while dealing with signs of disease progression, but you moved forward with the plans you had set and at the same time dealt with your new circumstances. How were you able to do that? Well, you know, when I think about it, <laughs> and, um, it seems exhausting. Um, <laughs> um, but in the moment, you know, I have been living life with cancer for 11 years. And one of the things I have learned in that time is that my life is not defined by cancer. And the news of this progression, while it was really overwhelming, did not change the fact that I felt great. So the day before, I had just like done some pull-ups with my trainer. You know, I was like, I'm in great mm. shape. I'm happy. Mm. I'm 
my life was wonderful. So I, I took this news while devastating to have my first progression. It was information. It didn't have to mean that I was all of a sudden sick or weak or scared. While I was all those things, I really refocused, you know, my energy on how beautiful my life is and that that information didn't have to change it the day I got this progression news. My life was still beautiful and I still had all these things on my calendar that were happening that I could partake in. And so I didn't let it derail my life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. So Laura, you were originally diagnosed with early stage breast cancer 11 years ago when you were seven months pregnant. Unbelievable. How was the cancer discovered and treated during that time? I was 30 years old and seven months pregnant, and I went in for my regular checkup with my OBGYN. Um, and just as I was speaking about pregnancy questions and changes in my body, I happened to mention some bloody discharge in my left breast and some discomfort. And I assumed it was one of the crazy things that happens when you're pregnant mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. really had dismissed it. But I, my doctor was immediately suspicious and mm-hmm. sent me that same day for a biopsy. And we, I, you know, any cancer diagnosis is um, overwhelming, but certainly being 30 years old and seven months pregnant, with no family mm-hmm. history, I mean, I was completely healthy, you know, yoga practicing, running, organic food eating, like top of my game, you know, point in my life. It really came out of nowhere for our family. And, um, you know, there was a lot of disbelief. I had, it was just so overwhelming, but um, we, you know, really just put a game plan in place like you do when you are, you know, early stage diagnosed. And I started treatment right away for, um, for my stage two breast cancer diagnosis. Treatment while you were pregnant. Correct. I had, I started chemotherapy. I had four rounds of chemo while I was Mm -hmm. pregnant with our son. And, um, one of the funny stories in the midst of all the, the -hmm. the sadness is Mm -hmm. I had a drug many people with breast cancer get. It's called adromycin cytoxin. It's often referred to as the red devil because it Mm is Kool-Aid red. And I had four rounds of that while I was pregnant. And here I was, you know, I had made my body a, a temple of health, mm-hmm. you know, for this growing baby inside me. And I remember that sitting there in that infusion chair the first time thinking, you know, just watching this toxic chemicals mm-hmm. go right into my vein with both my hands on my, my big pregnant belly and feeling our unborn child kick and thinking mm-hmm. just it's such disbelief. And Bennett had four rounds of that adromycin cytoxin, you know, a lot of information with our, our doctor about what that would do f- to him. And you know, what he was getting is, you know, how, how it was affecting him. And then it was born full term, healthy. I, mm-hmm. I did have to have a C-section so that he was delivered at a point where my counts were high in my mm-hmm. chemo treatment cycle. Mm-hmm. And it, you would not believe, but this little baby who had had four rounds of adromycin cytoxin came out with bright red hair. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and to this day, I mean, my husband and I were like, uh, that didn't see that one coming. You know, you don't, like, you don't, I hope you don't refer to him as the red devil, do you? <laughs> absolutely. And he lives up to that name. And now as a 10 year old, he still has the same bright red hair, that uh, fiery personality. And that, uh, a picture frame hangs in my oncologist's um, office that says, Dr. Harvey, thank you for my bright red hair. Oh, my gosh. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of people are always very shocked to find out that a woman 
can actually have chemotherapy while while pregnant. Um, you know, it, it is. It's it's amazing how I have met so many women, you know, who have an estrogen sensitive breast cancer yeah. who are diagnosed during pregnancy or in those first months after the baby is born, just because of the yeah. way that estrogen fuels the cancer. Right. Right, right, right. Well, and I, um, uh, you know, the statistics show that uh, that these there's no you know higher rate of any issues with these children than you know in the general otherwise healthy uh, healthy population, and it just shows how sort of magnificent the human body is in terms of being able to protect the baby. You know, during mm-hmm. that uh, during that time, it's pretty um, pretty remarkable. I remember mm-hmm. back when I was uh, I was surprised to learn that myself, especially with women saying, you know, oh, I you know I don't eat sushi, I don't drink coffee, right. I don't eat brie, I don't eat you know. Oh, and yeah. suddenly I'm getting chemotherapy. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly where I was. I was like, I'm yeah. microwaving my lunch meat, you know, yeah. <laughs> like everything yeah. I was doing, and then I could just do that. But yeah. you know, it was it was an incredibly surreal time in our life to go through that experience. And, and we lived in this like alternative reality, um, really for his, you know, his whole first year of life. Um, when I delivered him and then I went back to chemo nine days later. And then at three months I had a double mastectomy. I came home on mother's day to a three month old baby, Mm. a two year old, and, you know, the restrictions of a mastectomy mm-hmm. and not being able to lift anything more than five pounds. It was it was a, a really hard year, but we were supported by an amazing network of friends and family and, and this just deep-seated hope that we were going to face this one day at a time and, and get through the treatments and hopefully be able to return to a, a healthy life. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, Laura, I only have a couple of minutes until our uh, first break coming up here, but um, I want to turn to the scarves. I know while you were in treatment, a friend of a friend sent you a box of scarves and you were really, really touched by that gift. And can you tell us about her and why she sent the scarves and, and really what it meant to you? When I was first diagnosed and going through this experience while pregnant, I hadn't given much thought to losing my hair. And this box appeared from a a friend of a friend, her name was Kelly, and she had packaged up the scarves that she had worn during treatment and wrote, wrote a note that said, you can do this. And those scarves were so practical in the sense that I hadn't given, I hadn't planned for what I would wear when I lost my hair. And also so inspiring, just knowing this other young woman had faced cancer and was now passing on these scarves to me. And I wore Kelly's scarves throughout my treatment. And every time I put them on, I felt her love and her encouragement. And I collected a lot of other scarves. I never wore a wig. I just felt more comfortable in the scarves. And it just was such a, a, a monumental experience to get these this package from her that it left a mark on me. And her encouragement really brought me strength throughout my treatment. And so when I was finished with my treatment, I asked her for her address and so I could send the scarves back to her. And she told me, just find somebody else who could use them. Mm-hmm. And I went to a conference for young women um, with cancer called the Young Survival Coalition Conference. And I packaged up those scarves and I met a woman there named Roberta. And I gave Roberta these scarves and I told her about Kelly and I told her about my story and I showed her how to wear them. And I realized that this, these scarves meant so much to me when I received them and needed the encouragement, but also the act of passing them on and telling Roberta 
my story and what I had learned through my experience was just as meaningful. And this full circle experience, both of the receiving and the passing them on, was powerful. And I just thought, how could I take this personal experience that I've had and create an opportunity for other women to do the same? And that was really, that's where you really, in your mind, birthed the idea of, of Hope Scarves. Exactly. I mm-hmm. was at, I told Roberta that day about the mm-hmm. idea and just kind of in a dreaming sense, yep. you know, mm-hmm. and just wanting like so many cancer patients, you know, I wanted to turn the heartbreak yep. into yep. love. We're going to talk I more did- about that, Laura. We're going to, um, we're coming up on a, a really quick break here. Um, talking to Laura McGregor. She's the founder of Hope Scarves, an international nonprofit that is based in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, the mission is to share scarves, stories of hope with people facing cancer. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back with Laura uh, in just a minute. So don't go away. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease, because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, Visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com 
or call 617-733-5848. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today we're talking about living well with a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. Our guest is Laura McGregor, who has been living with metastatic breast cancer since January 2014. Laura lives each day to the fullest with intention and joy. She holds tightly to the power of hope and treasures beautiful moments in the midst of ongoing treatment. So, Laura, at the end of our last segment, you told us the story about how how someone sent you a box of scarves and then you passed those scarves along uh, and that really birthed the idea of hope scarves. So take us back uh, to that moment, to your conversations with Roberta, you passed the scarves on to her and tell us what was going on in your mind about this project. I realized that I didn't want this experience of cancer to define my life in a negative way that I, you know, I couldn't change the fact that my life had been disrupted by cancer, but I could turn the heartbreak into love and really realize the healing power of helping others and how much that meant to me personally to be able to do that and passing on the scarves and that if I could create an organization that could allow others to do the same, I could really turn, you know, this experience into something beautiful. Amazing. Amazing. You know, Laura, you talked about um, that you were in remission for, 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 for quite some time. And I'm just curious, what was the possibility of developing metastatic breast cancer on your radar while you were in remission was a recurrence always sort of in the back of your mind. Talk about your, your sort of, you know, sort of mental state during that time and how you managed that. It really wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of survivors live in fear of the reoccurrence and mm-hmm. have a lot of that anxiety. I just didn't. I was so filled with gratitude for the health and the the life that I had. I ran marathons, I competed in triathlons, I climbed mountains. I mean, I just embraced life. And I didn't spend time worrying about it. And, you know, I think back, people would ask me, like, would I change that? Or, you know, would I rather have, like, been more thoughtful about the metastatic possibility? And I think not for a second. You know, I'm so glad I had those seven years of, of feeling so great and living my life to the fullest. And I wouldn't change that for a second. I definitely would though have, you know, I think maybe I I wish I would have been more aware of the overall picture of breast cancer and the possibility of the metastatic diagnosis. I was like so many other breast cancer survivors and that I didn't want to think about that elephant in the pink room. I, mm-hmm. I was living fully as a survivor. I joke that I was like the poster child for breast cancer survivors because I was, I was like literally on a poster. Um, but I think now as a metastatic patient, like how incredibly short sighted that was of me to not be mindful of the reality that 30% of people who have breast cancer 
metastasize and to be more aware of the whole spectrum of breast cancer, which Mm -hmm. I, I surely am now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell us what symptoms did you experience that led to the metastatic breast cancer diagnosis or what happened that led you to that diagnosis? I was doing a lot of trail running and had developed some pain in my low back that, and I just assumed I had like a slipped disc or some kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, like athletic related injury. I also was really spending a lot of time building hope scarves. So I was sitting at my desk more and it didn't even really cross my mind that it was metastatic breast cancer. I mean, Mm -hmm. I fully admit that. And, um, so when I went in and they saw, I went in for an MRI thinking it was like, you know, a sports injury and what an MRI revealed was an orange sized tumor in my sacrum that was Mm. wrapped around my sciatic nerve. Mm. I guess that would cause some pain. I could barely walk. Mm, I bet. I bet. I bet. Um, Laura, I know you've also talked about feeling isolated from the larger breast cancer community as someone living with metastatic breast cancer. Can you talk about that a little bit more? You know, it's interesting. Having had this metastatic diagnosis for five years, I feel like it's the experience has changed a lot in those five years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I was originally diagnosed, I was so surprised with how different that diagnosis was than my early stage diagnosis. When I was mm-hmm. first diagnosed, you know, I had a nurse came in and gave me a this bag full of resources and this timeline of my treatment options and all the support, you know, documents. And I, I had another nurse come in and give me, you know, this support piece. And somebody else called me from this organization. It was like this like army surrounded me of, you know, facing breast cancer. And when I had my metastatic diagnosis, My husband and I walked out of the hospital room after talking to the doctor without having talked to one other support person, not Mm. one social Mm. worker, not one. I mean, it was like we, the weight of this diagnosis is so much heavier than an Mm. early stage diagnosis that the support and the, the mechanism built into the experience was drastically less and it just, it hit me really hard that the whole breast cancer, you know, conversation and the, the, um, the messaging is so much around this early stage experience that when you're facing this advanced diagnosis, this progression, that you almost are on this like island. And it was, it was so, it just was so wrong. You know, it really struck me at how much that was backwards that the people who advance to metastatic disease that are facing a terminal illness should have the most support the, they should be the brightest, mm-hmm. most vivid pink of all, you know, like that should be the heart, the whole rest of the pinkness should be surrounding those people because those are the women that are going to be in the treatment the rest of their lives. Whereas instead you feel by yourself and I don't know if it's because, you know, when you like, when you get a red car, you see all the red cars on the street, but <laughs> I feel like the tide has shifted in these five years that I have been a metastatic survivor mm-hmm. in that the support mechanisms that have begun to, to really be highlighted within existing breast cancer support organizations, whether it's a Komen Foundation, a Young Survival Coalition, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, there's a, there's more, I never even saw the word metastatic in mm-hmm. 2000, 
seven. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. at, at least I didn't think I did, or maybe I just didn't look for it. You mm-hmm. know, it's mm-hmm. it appears to be much more prominent, and I certainly feel like there's conversation around the breast cancer community that not me, but could be idea that we all should be talking about and understanding and advocating for research for metastatic, because if we can figure out how to make this a chronic disease, we're all better off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed, Laura. Agreed. Um, Hey, Laura, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your organization? I know it's called Hope Scarves. Hope is a core theme of your work. So why did you choose that name and, and, Did your definition of hope change at all with your second diagnosis? Absolutely. It changed significantly. And and our work at Hope Scarves changed significantly. So at Hope Scarves, we collect scarves and stories from people who who face cancer. And it's all types of cancer. While I have breast cancer, and we, we do a lot in that breast cancer sector, we are supporting people facing all types of cancer. And, and hope scarves are shared in three ways. So if you have cancer, you can request a scarf for yourself. And every if you know someone facing cancer, you can send a hope scarf as a gift. Mm. And so we have the personal request, the gift request, and then we have a partnership program where we work with hospitals and cancer support organizations around the country to have the hope scarves where patients are already going for support. So instead of putting the burden on the patient to have to go online and request a scarf, we have them right there at the infusion center or at their support group. And we have 17 partnership locations around the country where we have the hope scarves as part of care for the patient. And every Hope scarf is a scarf that can be worn as a head cover. It doesn't have to be. We recognize that not everybody loses their hair through treatment, um, and not everybody wears a scarf. They might wear it around their neck. They might just hold it in their hands. The scarf is the vehicle for the story. Every Hope scarf has a story that was written by another person who has faced cancer. We also include scarf tying instructions and information about Hope scarves. And since starting in my spare bedroom, with my two-year-old volunteer by my side, <laughs> we now have a, a bustling studio office space filled with volunteers and, and a, a small but mighty staff. And we've sent over 10,000 Hope Scarves to every state and 26 countries. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and Laura, how has your experience with living with metastatic breast cancer influenced your organization and the organization's mission? Did, did, did things change? Did how you feel about things change? It did. And, and that gets to that idea that earlier about how that definition of hope changed. You know, we were like many cancer support organizations, and I was like many cancer survivors, and that I, I didn't want to think about the reoccurrence or the progression, mm-hmm. the advanced stages. I wanted to share the happy stories and celebrate survivors. And so when I experienced metastatic disease, I realized how short-sighted that was for me personally and our organization to just share the happy stories. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. if we truly were going to help change the way people experience cancer, we had to do that for all stages. And mm. I had this idea that hope existed in the beating of cancer, you know, so often it's referred to and, you know, in those fighting kind of terms that that hope existed in the survivorship. But after my progression, I learned so clearly that hope is the very brightest in the darkness. And it's not about 
beating cancer, but it's about living life over mm-hmm. cancer. Mm-hmm. And so at Hope Scarves, we scrubbed our website full of all of that language that somehow um, expressed this idea that cancer was only like, or yeah. that hope was only there for the survivor, but that it yeah. was there for everybody, not just in the beating, but in the living life over cancer. And so we use words like facing cancer instead of beating. And we, um, you know, really celebrate every story for the hope that it has, no matter what the prognosis is or the stage. Yeah, yeah. Really fantastic, Laura. Uh, hey, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick uh, break here. Uh, the Cancer Support Community is proud to create and bring you our special spotlight on metastatic breast cancer and appreciates Lily Oncology for providing the educational grant to allow us to do so. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. At Lilly Oncology, We know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. More can be done for the mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, and partners facing the unique challenges of this advanced disease, and every moment counts. While there has been progress made over the last few years in distinguishing MBC and bringing forward new treatment options, there is still more to be done to truly support the women and men living with this disease every day so they can continue to be there for family and friends. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease because together we know we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Today's episode is part of our special series, Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer. We've been having a really insightful conversation with Laura McGregor about living well and thriving with metastatic breast cancer. Laura has been living with metastatic breast cancer for nearly five years. She is the founder of Hope Scarves, an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to share scarves, stories, and hope. 
with people facing cancer. So, Laura, we talked about sort of that direct service component uh, of your organization providing these scarves uh, uh, to women. Are there other aspects of the organization? Tell us more about how the mission is sort of growing and expanding. Our original mission was to share scarves and stories of hope with people facing cancer. After my metastatic diagnosis, we realized that the hope wasn't just tied to the story, that with just a little tweak of semantics and changing our mission to sharing scarves, stories, and hope, we could define hope in many ways. And I realized in that metastatic diagnosis that hope wasn't just in the beating of cancer, that you, I had to find ways to live fully present and feel hope in the midst of facing cancer. And one of the ways we did that was to expand our mission to invest in metastatic breast cancer research. Mm -hmm. And so we started a research fund. So I just, I was appalled by how little money went to metastatic breast cancer research, not to prevention or to um, detection, but to accelerating treatment options for people who had metastatic breast cancer. It was, it's, a, it's a terribly small percentage of the overall millions and millions of dollars that are raised for breast cancer and even for breast cancer research. And so I wanted to be part of trying to shift that and to try to show that if our organization could expand our mission to include research, that maybe other organizations who were helping breast cancer patients and cancer patients as a whole could see how they could expand their mission to not just include a program but also include research. And so we started the our research fund. And when we raise money for metastatic breast cancer research, 100% of that money goes directly to research. We don't take any money out of those donations to, for administrative costs or you know, to keep the lights on. We also don't use that money for our scarves and stories program. That mm -hmm. comes from our general fund. And so the first year we raised $50,000. The next year we raised $100,000. And at, I realized that those were drops in the bucket and that if I really wanted to be able to be an advocate for research, I had to collaborate. And so we started the Metastatic Breast Cancer Research Collective with two other small organizations that were funding research, Twisted Pink and The Cancer Couch. Together, we pool all of our money together and we have an anonymous donor who matches dollar for dollar every bit we raise for research. And this year, we're raising a little over... $500,000, which will wow. be matched. Wow. And so we're investing a million dollars um, this year in metastatic breast cancer research. Wow, congrats. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. And God bless that donor. <laughs> it's pretty powerful yeah. to be able to, you know, feel like you're part of change. And yeah. even though, you know, it's it can be really overwhelming. And I realize that even a million dollars, while it takes a lot of work, is such a small drop, you know, in the ocean of, of what it's going to take to make this disease a chronic illness or, you know, accelerate treatment options. I, it, I feel like we're at least part of the solution and, and we're going to lay that one brick on the path mm -hmm. that's going to get us there mm -hmm. and maybe two bricks. And mm -hmm. I don't know how long the path is, but I have to be part of trying to get there. Good for you. Good for you. Congrats. It's a uh, terrific. Um, you know, Laura, I think anyone who spends time with you will hear you talk about living life over cancer, which is essentially your philosophy, really. But what does mm -hmm. that phrase, what does that mean to you, that phrase? How do you live that? You know, 
I did not come to this just in a, in a, a simple like moment of awakeness. I had to work really hard at getting to this place. And I talk a lot about that with people who are newly diagnosed that I, I after my metastatic diagnosis, I went into a pretty dark depression for about six months. I lost about 40 pounds and my smile. And I was just devastated that I was had the terminal diagnosis. I was, you know, uh, 40 years old. And I had these little children at home and I had already faced cancer, you know, once mm. and I couldn't believe this was happening again. But I, I realized with the help of a counselor that I could not live in this perceived future of when my disease would progress, when the treatments would become so toxic that I couldn't live my life. And when I would, you know, when I might die, I could not live in that perceived future. I had to live fully grounded in the present day and to focus on gratitude instead of fear. And that was pretty powerful. And to me, that meant living life over cancer. And when I accepted that heartache and that, you know, I accepted this diagnosis, I allowed a little bit of light into my life. And that, that little prick of light, you know, Mm -hmm. just grew stronger and stronger as I got my footing in this diagnosis. And I came to peace and I accepted this diagnosis and now I live this like fully awakened purposeful life that is so much deeper and you know I feel like I love so much stronger I laugh so much louder because I have such great appreciation for the fragility of life Mm -hmm. and for this time that I have to be well and to to be here and, and to do my part here on this earth to, to, to you know, bring good to the, mm-hmm. bring good to other people and, and share this hope that I have. And how does that, how has that attitude um, impacted your, um, your communication, your interface, your relationship with your healthcare team? How do you make sure that your values and preferences are heard in those conversations with your docs? That's a good question. You know, I mean, certainly as a metastatic patient, you are, treatment is a part of your life. I, I often say it's like my part-time job, you know, working on my, my wellness, not only in my regular like medical appointments, but in my fuller, like overall approach to living well, whether that's my, you know, my diet and exercise, you know, complementary treatments like acupuncture and yoga and all the things I do to be well are all part of that overall like conversation of how I want to live and be as strong as possible. And we make choices with my medical team that are about quality of life. And I recently just had that exact conversation when I experienced this progression and we were talking about treatment options. The thing that's crazy about metastatic disease is like, you stay on, you know, you stay on a treatment until it stops working and then you move to the next treatment, but you try to get as much time on each treatment as possible because as you progress down the list of known treatment options, they become more toxic. And so I always say I'm holding on for science. I'm holding on for science. And my doctors know that I want to live as fully and well as I can for as long as I can. So we make choices that allow for a really high quality of life for as long as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Laura, we're inching towards uh, the end of our show. I would like for you to take another minute or two to tell folks 
about your organization? How can they get involved? Can they donate a scarf? Can they request a scarf? You know, give us some of those uh, those details, please. Absolutely. I am so excited to shout from the mountaintops about <laughs> scarves to all your listeners. Um, if you yourself are a patient, you can request a Hope Scarf on our website, hopescarves.org. You can call as well and request a scarf. There's a simple form that you fill out and our volunteers will take into consideration your age, your color preference, your diagnosis, and we'll find you a scarf that um, will be inspiring and, and be a story that that reflects what you're facing. If you know someone facing cancer, you can send them a hope scarf. And it's a it's a, a meaningful gift, but it's also a very practical way to support someone you care about. And in our gift scarf program, you can put a personal message and then make a donation in honor of your recipient if you wish. We've gotten everything from $5 to $1,000 donations in our gift scarf program. And then our partnership program, we are eager to find more locations around the country where we can have scarves where patients are already going for support. And if somebody is at a a hospital or a cancer support organization, they can email hello at hopescarves.org to get more information about our partnership program. And then anyone who has faced cancer can share their story. And I would hope that sharing their story with Hope Scarves and donating their scarves, if they have some, would be a way for them to reflect on their experience and to pass along the strength and the lessons they learned through treatment to someone else. And that was just as powerful as I said earlier, you know, to me as receiving the scarves was in paying it forward and and telling my story to someone else. And so we would love for anyone listening who has had a cancer diagnosis, whether they're in treatment, they're um, you know in remission, they're facing an advanced disease, you know, progression, wherever they are in that continuum of cancer survivorship, that they would share their story with us. And if you go on our website, we have just a couple questions to help get the creative juices flowing of how you'd like to write your story. It's a simple form. You can submit it online. We also have the opportunity to set up a call and tell your story to one of our staff or volunteers. And we'll, um, we'll write it, we'll record it and type it up for you. And it'll be added to our collection. And our stories are the heart of what we do. We have over 800 stories and we're really excited to work with, with your network and, and the listeners here to help us expand our program because we want to get these hope scarves in the mm-hmm. hands of patients and collect more scarves and stories from Wonderful. survivors. Wonderful. Laura McGregor, thank you so much. I want to remind our listeners if they want to learn more about Laura's efforts, they can go to hopescarves.org. Um, it's just really been a wonderful uh, conversation, Laura. This is, uh, frankly speaking, about cancer. Uh, the show today is part of our special series, Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer. We appreciate Lilly Oncology for providing the educational grant uh, to allow us to do the show today. Uh, again, I want to remind folks to um, check out hopescarves.org to learn more about Laura's amazing work. Laura, thank you uh, again for joining us today. We have more to discuss, uh, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease, because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is part of our special series, Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebelda. We just had a wonderful and inspiring conversation with Laura McGregor, who's been living with metastatic breast cancer for nearly five years. We are now joined by Nancy Lomibal. Nancy has worked at the Cancer Support Community Redondo Beach since 2014 and is the program director and chief clinical director. She oversees the programs that support cancer patients and their loved ones. Nancy also serves on the Cancer Support Community's Metastatic Breast Cancer Expert Panel. Hi, Nancy. Hi, how are you? Good, good. I'm so happy to have you on. Um, Nancy, you know, thanks to better and, and more targeted treatment options, some women are certainly living longer than ever with metastatic breast cancer, with a notable percent living five years or more, and some for 10 years more than that. Um, what do you usually tell someone who's just been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer? You know, usually when someone's coming in and they've just been diagnosed, I want to do three different things. One is to acknowledge where they're at and how they're feeling. They are usually feeling things like fear, sadness, 
anxiety, sometimes they're overwhelmed or they're really numb. So it can be a wide variety of feelings. And then secondly, I want to reassure them that there's support. We have support available at Cancer Support Community. There's other places. But I really want them to hear that they don't have to go through this alone. Mm-hmm. And, and there's support groups and, and resources. And then the third piece is I really want to help them to get centered and focused. There's a lot of things that are coming down the pike for them. So uh, helping them wrap their head around what's going on and, and really getting them centered and focused, what they want to ask, where they want to move forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really good tips, Nancy. Um, you know, Nancy, I know it, 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 it's clear that whenever possible, preserving life goals and milestones like traveling to your vacation, <clears throat> attending family events, weddings, graduations, you know, oftentimes people want to build those into their uh, into their goals. How do they have a conversation with their doctor to say, hey, look, these are my priorities. These are my preferences. How do we make a treatment plan that fits in with my life? Well, I, I think, you know, these are huge life-affirming things and, and activities. So they'll be wanting to have an, a really open and honest discussion about what their goals are. Um, we, we hear so often people talk about quality versus quantity, and we're talking about quality of life versus quantity of life. And, and the majority of people, they, they want quality and quantity. So being an open and honest, uh, talking through the treatment options, and knowing what the side effects are, what the symptoms are, and how they can best manage them is huge. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think, you know, we heard Laura say, that her life is not defined by cancer and mm-hmm. that she didn't want to let this derail her life. So passing those types of messages on to the treatment team in terms of what they want to do and still accomplish. Um, so it's really helpful for them to also be able to write these questions down in advance so that they can have this conversation and that it's clear with their doctor's and, of course, having a person that they can bring along with them to help make sure that they're, you know, continuing to stay clear and focused with what they're wanting and communicating that well with their treatment team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy, give our listeners a couple quick tips. I know you've worked so much with patients really on the ground, but really some keys or tips to living well and, and thriving with metastatic breast cancer, which we know can certainly be an upsetting diagnosis. Right. But I I think one of the very first things is making sure that there's support. So building a support person, who is that? Is that your your family, your friends, your faith community? And then looking outside of that as well, are there support groups in your area? For us at Cancer Support Community, we have a number of support groups. So we want them to incorporate that. Um, the, The other pieces include making sure that you're addressing your, your nutrition and your exercise and, and managing your sleep, those things that, um, you know, are within your ability to control and do something about. And we heard Laura mention that as well. Uh, that was important to her to stay focused on her yoga and her activities, her acupuncture, things like that, 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 that helped her feel good and alive and connected. Um, the yeah. other things that, you know, that come up too would be helping and making sure that they are managing their anxiety and, and learning how to relax and also to live well with this diagnosis. 
So as much as they can incorporate those things like yoga or meditation, artwork, some type of expression, um, you know, things that make them happy, reading, sound therapy, that's going to contribute to them living well and thriving. Um, and then I would also say being able to seek some additional help if they're finding that they're really having trouble and not functioning well. So there's yeah. so many different resources there. Um, so yeah, I let's talk. Encourage- let's talk about that for a minute, Nancy. So, what am, am I asking my doctor? Are there resources in the hospital in the community? How do I go about finding some of those resources? Well, certainly there are um, resources at the local cancer support communities, but um, we also have a a, hot, a helpline where they can call and get some of these resources. So it might be connecting them with someone like a nurse navigator or. Mm-hmm someone who can help them with insurance, someone who can help prepare legal documents with them, might be referring them for for outpatient counseling or therapy, Mm -hmm. uh, just a variety of things that come up for, for them. Yeah, and I, I, I uh, maybe I'll mention that uh, that helpline number uh, since you made reference to that. Um, Nancy, it's, uh, if folks want to grab a pen, it's uh, 888-793-9355. Again, it's 888-793-9355 and you can pick up the phone right now and call that helpline to speak to one of our counselors and they can help you with a whole host of they can do, do counseling with you over the phone help you with information uh, referral we have a lot of great experts um, uh, great experts on that line we've only got a minute or so to go here Nancy final tips for someone facing a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis I really feel like one of the best things that they can do from themselves is to reach out and mm-hmm. to not be in isolation with that. Um, Laura referenced sort of going into the, a, a depression for about six months and, and losing yeah. her ability yeah. to smile, and we don't want to see that. So if they can reach out to the, the local CSCs, there's lots of places online where they can get assistance and help. Um, you know, some of them, like the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network and the Young Survival Coalition that Laura mentioned. Um, But really, if they can find things that local within their community where they can reach out and connect, these are all things that are going to help remind them of those things that help them live well with with a metastatic diagnosis. Mm, Great, uh, great tips, Nancy. Uh, I know that all of us at the Cancer Support Community are proud to create and bring you this important series on metastatic breast cancer. We're grateful to Lilly Oncology for providing the educational grant, allowing us to uh, do so. Uh, Just uh, to echo what Nancy's saying, we've got a lot of great free resources available to women with metastatic breast cancer, but also to people with all cancers at any stage of disease. You can find uh, a list of our wonderful centers uh, at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You can also find on that website some wonderful resources on dealing with a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. Again, it's cancersupportcommunity.org. Or you can pick up the phone right now to speak to one of our helpline counselors. That number is 888-793-9355. We really thank you for joining us. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well. Do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. 
In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <laughs> 